Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Back in the days of the Soviet Union, one country got a disproportionate share of the Union's natural gas storage capacity, Ukraine. We ask how a country at war can be a good place to park the stuff in seasonal buy-low-sell-high deals. And in more than half of American states, it's illegal to marry your first cousin. Yet from a scientific point of view, there's less danger to it than you might think. The perceptions will win out, though, making for a weirdly illiberal set of laws. First up, though... I was at Nikki Haley's watch party in a very nice hotel in Charleston, South Carolina, and it was over before it really had the chance to begin. Idris Kaloun is our Washington bureau chief and over the weekend has been covering the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Within seconds of the polls closing at 7 p.m., the networks had all called the primary for Donald Trump. That was obviously a crushing blow for Nikki Haley, given that South Carolina is the state that she was the governor of. And of her supporters that had assembled, very few of them were actually in the ballroom for the news to arrive. They were distracted by the really quite spectacular charcuterie boards and dips that were assembled there. Very quickly, they changed the audio feed from the newscast to the music that then played for the next hour before Nikki Haley took the stage and vowed to fight on despite the 20-point defeat that she had suffered in her home state. It was odd. I don't think anyone expected Nikki Haley to win, given the state of the polls, but the mood was not at all funereal, as you might have expected. In fact, people found lots of things to cheer for. At one point, the margin of victory on the screen went from 19 points to 16 points, prompting a cheer. At one point, someone stood in front of the camera projector and blocked out the image of Donald Trump, also provoking a cheer. When Nikki Haley was on and speaking, there was really quite a lot of enthusiasm and happiness. So it was the opposite of what I might have expected if the candidate I was voting for and supporting had just been dealt a a blow of 20 or so percentage points. I mean, at the mention of what you would expect, you would expect a candidate after that kind of walloping in her home state to call it quits. What, What do you make of her vowing to fight on? 
you know, she is an incredibly tenacious politician and she always has been. Um, so it's in that sense, not a surprise. But the reason that she can continue is that she has the money to do so. Donors are incredibly favorable towards her. A lot of the Republican donors really don't like Trump and they are willing to kind of splash money on anyone who they see as the best chance at defeating him. Previously, that was Ron DeSantis. It quickly moved to Nikki Haley. So her campaign really doesn't have to end. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, presidential campaigns end when the money runs out. But in her case, the party can go on for a while longer. I don't think it can go on for much, much longer, though. In the next 10 or so days, we'll have 21 more state primaries, at which point a significant chunk of the primary race will actually be over. And given her poor showing in South Carolina, given her poor showing in New Hampshire, which is also another state that she competed quite heavily in and is somewhere she ought to have done well in, I don't expect that she will do any better. And so I think we're about 10 or so days from Nikki Haley ultimately coming to terms with reality. There has to be more to it, though, than someone who's just determined to spend donors' money. What motivations might there be besides the coffers aren't empty yet? Well, you know, she is the lone ambassador for the anti-Trump wing of the Republican Party right now. It's taken her a bit to get there. You know, she served in the Donald Trump administration. She was critical of him for a period and then avoided criticism throughout much of the campaign. But now that it's only her and the former president left, she has assumed the mantle of the resistance to Trump within the party. And she critiques him on all sorts of substantive policy points that are important. She is the ambassador of the internationalist wing of the party. She is strenuously arguing for military aid to be provided to Ukraine. She represents in many ways the old style of Reaganite Republican. She's concerned with the level of national debt, a lot of which was built up during Donald Trump's presidency. She talks about the need for reforming entitlement programs, all of those things that you used to hear Republicans say, but that they no longer do. The problem for Nikki Haley is that that faction of the party, although it's popular among the donors, just isn't really very popular among the actual base voters who are going to determine who their party's next nominee is going to be. And so for that reason, she's very quickly running out of room. If South Carolina wasn't the fatal blow, it isn't very far away. So at the moment, what she represents is not hugely popular with the primary voters. But is this connected at all, do you think, to future electoral contests? So, of course, Nikki Haley says that she's in this to win it and that she thinks that she still has a path forward, although it's hard to discern what exactly that path would be. Some have argued that she was staying in the race in order to be the eventual vice president. Given the depth of bad blood between her and Donald Trump now, I think that we can safely say that that's impossible. But you could argue that this sets her up rather well for 2028 in a post-Trump Republican Party in which someone who has generated as much name recognition as she has could make a bid to be the successor to Donald Trump. I think that you can't, of course, rule that out. But I think that in terms of immediate political future, it's hard to see where she goes for now. Well, setting herself up to be a successor, but only if the politics that she's championing is back in favor, I suppose. What odds do you give that of happening? I mean, right now, the Republican Party is in a weird place. It's politics and its policies have been turned upside down by Donald Trump over the last eight years. Eight years is a long time in politics. That means that all of the transitions, the turn from uh, internationalism to isolationism, the turn from free markets to protectionism, the virulent opposition to immigration, that stuff will become entrenched. And the old school wing of the party, the one that Nikki Haley 
represents and is kind of the sole leading ambassador of is waning, not even at the presidential level, but all over the place. So in the House of Representatives, the speaker is thoroughly allied with Donald Trump. All of the people who you can imagine is leading a kind of post-Trump Republican Party there. Many of them are just leaving the House altogether. So uh, Mike Gallagher, the representative from Wisconsin, who was in charge of the important U.S.-China committee, announced that he wasn't going to be seeking re-election Many of the strong critics of Donald Trump, both in the House and in the Senate, have basically been forced out of elected office, such as Liz Cheney in Wyoming. And in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who has led the party for a very long time, the longest of any party leader in modern history, his grip is waning. His support for Ukraine puts him out of step with a lot of his colleagues. His age means that his command over the party is slipping. And so I think that what emerges after another four years, if Donald Trump is to take the White House will be a very, very different party itself. Ideas don't just, you know, fully die. So I don't think that we could say the Reaganite wing is totally done in the Republican Party, but they do go dormant and they do lose influence. And so I don't think that we can picture a return of the old style of politics, the 2012 style of politics that we had before. Which seems to suggest then that when we see the last of Nikki Haley in this election cycle, as as you predict, then that's the last we'll see of Nikki Haley full stop. And I disagree with that. She's relatively young in America's geriatric politics. She's only 52. And she has made herself a household name. She will have a chance, if she wants it, to try to steer the post-Trump Republican Party maybe somewhere back to normalcy or maybe somewhere else entirely. But I think that if she wants that opportunity, she will still have it. Thanks very much for your time, Idris. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Just after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, natural gas prices rocketed, but by the following spring, they had calmed down. Yet another spike was sure to come in the colder months. Europe needed a plan to weather the weather. Meanwhile, commodity traders had spotted an opportunity. If they bought gas at rock-bottom summer rates, they could sell it at a juicy profit in the winter months. To make that scheme work, they needed somewhere to put it. Europe's underground capacity was almost full, and it would have been too pricey to park the gas in tankers offshore. So they settled on a surprising solution. They pumped three billion cubic meters of natural gas eastward to Ukraine. It definitely seems ill-advised to stash gas in a war zone. Fraser McIlwraith writes for The Economist's digital team. Last spring, when this trade came onto the map, analysts generally assumed that trading companies would require publicly guaranteed war insurance either from the EU or from national governments in order to be willing to risk such a trade. But by around June, the spread between summer and winter prices had widened so much that the profits became irresistible and the gamble looked worthwhile. And was the gamble worth taking? 
Yeah, so the plan worked pretty successfully to the surprise of many. So the resulting trade helped keep the EU's reserves stocked throughout the winter. That led to prices across the continent being suppressed because stores were so chock full. But it also benefited the firms involved. I spoke to Akos Lodge at Columbia University and he explained the total profits that firms could be expected to make from the trade. Even if we subtract the cost of logistics, then the total profit comes out at around 300 million euros. The trade is looking like a kind of test run for uh, the future of Europe's energy storage strategy. There's a certain irony here that the thing that made the prices so volatile in the first place was a war that was going on in the country where the stuff was stored that kept the prices stable. I guess the question I'm left with is why Ukraine then, of all places in the world? One of the things Ukraine has tried to do in recent years is give extra incentives to traders to use its storage. It offers custom-free deals which allow traders to store gas in its facilities if it's going to be re-exported within three years. It's also home to the continent's second largest storage capacity after Russia. It totals nearly 33 billion cubic meters and that dwarfs that at the storage capacity of large economies like Germany. And it's about 10 times bigger than the storage capacity of nearby countries like Poland. It's enormous and it massively exceeds the country's domestic needs because it was originally developed as part of the Soviet Union and that meant that it was designed to serve lots of other countries. Both the EU and the Ukrainian government are keen to use the storage. The Ukrainian prime minister is very keen to turn Ukraine into what he calls Europe's gas safe. And the EU are quite keen on their part to support those efforts. The state-owned energy company Naftogaz has a lot of capacity to offer and has been really trying to court traders, as Ecoslog explained. The company basically wants to become the energy bank for Europe and it has been very actively trying to convince European companies and policymakers to store more gas in Ukraine. So Naftogaz, they've offered up to almost half of their storage space to foreign traders. Traders are now poised to repeat the trade that they did last year, but probably at bigger volumes and probably starting from an earlier date. So who are the traders here? Where is this stuff getting to when it is exported again? The names of the companies involved aren't disclosed for security reasons. There are a lot of risks involved with storing gas in Ukraine, and most of the companies, which in this industry tend to be quite secretive anyway, have decided not to disclose their involvement. The only one we know has been involved, which announced that it had stored gas in Ukraine, is Trafiguro, which is one of the biggest commodities traders in the world. But there are many, many more. Naftogaz reported that over 100 European companies made use of its storage sites. And these vary quite dramatically in terms of the types of companies that they are. Natasha Fielding from the energy information firm Argus Media said that these also include large energy companies with trading desks and smaller local utility firms based in the region. So countries like Moldova and Slovakia lack storage capacity of their own. And these countries also remain heavily dependent on Russian gas, which is still delivered through Ukraine under a long-term transit agreement, which looks set to expire in December this year. And this might be a dumb question, but is this gas not particularly at risk in a country that is at war? Yeah, so of course there are risks involved. Traders were well aware of that, and it's one of the reasons why they held off doing this trade until the profits grew so big that they were incentivized to kind of embrace it. But there are reasons why the risks might not be so extreme as one would immediately assume. Most of the gas storage facilities are deep underground. They're relatively safe, and even if pipelines which deliver the gas to them are damaged by Russian bombs, 
Ukraine can draw from other sites to fulfill delivery contracts. They also did a lot of things about preventing sabotage, upping security around the sites, which helped to reassure traders too. Another incentive for traders was that the majority of the storage is situated near the border with Poland, near to Lviv in the west of the country, which is quite far from the front line. And so the risk to those facilities is relatively less compared to what it would be for storage facilities in the east of the country. As I said before, this doesn't remove the risk entirely. It's still a risky trade, but commodity traders are largely in the business of managing risks. So they ended up pursuing it. And what's in it for Ukraine? You said that essentially Ukraine is not charging very much for the privilege. What's in it for them? So there are two things. The country still receives around $1.5 billion a year from Russian companies which use its pipelines to deliver gas under the existing transit deal, the one I mentioned earlier. Once that agreement lapses, the government intends to try to make up some of the shortfall using storage fees paid by Western firms. Another consideration is also in play, and that's a more strategic consideration. Ukraine's leaders see that the more they try to integrate their country's energy industry with that of Europe, the more invested the European Union will be in their defence in the long term. And at a time when support from other allies can look shaky, that can be worth quite a lot. Fraser, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. In January, Nick Wilson, a state legislator in Kentucky, created a social media frenzy. He sponsored a bill concerning the official list of incestuous relations. He wanted first cousin removed from it. Reactions on social media ranged from poking fun to outright disgust. Relatively few people pointed out that in lots of other states, it's legal to have sexual relations with and marry your cousin. In the end, Mr. Wilson said the bill was a mistake and withdrew it. But it does leave a question lingering. Scientifically speaking, how okay is that whole kissing cousins thing? Geneticists mostly say that marrying your cousin is okay. But there are a few things to note. Tamara jilks is our U.S. public policy correspondent. When people first hear this idea about marrying or having sexual relations with your first cousin, after the ick factor, one of the immediate concerns is usually the baby. Will the baby be okay? And it turns out that the risk to offspring is actually greater, but the increase is quite small. That does not line up with what I guess is an old wives' tale, old cousin's tale about it will definitely mess up your baby. Yeah, it definitely doesn't align with that. But when you look at the facts, it actually seems like the baby will be okay. So back in 2021, the National Society of Genetic Counselors, or NSGC, updated their guidelines for consanguineous couples, which is a fancy word for people descended from the same ancestor and their offspring. And according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 3% of all babies born in America have birth defects. So about 97% of babies are born without them. And when it comes to the babies of first cousins, there is an increase, but it's only about two to three percentage points more. So another way to say that is about 94 to 95% of those babies are born without a genetic disorder. And when you think about it, a lot of other couples face far higher risks when it comes to genetic complications for their babies. 
So clearly an increase, as you say, on the risk, but not no risk whatsoever. But in any case, not as much as people tend to guess. Right. There is an increase in risk. But is it really enough to warrant banning the marriage? Because of this, Robin Bennett from the University of Washington's Department of Medicine thinks that laws against first cousin marriage is a major form of discrimination. She points out, like I said before, that many other couples face far greater risks and yet they are allowed to marry each other. Think back to biology class, middle school, high school. Think about classic Mendelian genetics. And that predicts that if two people each have a recessive gene for certain disorders like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia, there's a 25% chance that their child will have that disorder. But those marriages are still allowed. So if this really isn't about genetics, then what is the general societal hang-up? Actually, throughout Western history, attitudes about cousin marriage have varied. The Bible does not ban sexual relations between cousins. I mean, how else then would we have all descended from Adam and Eve? And the Roman Catholic Church did later prohibit first cousins from marrying, but of course they allowed an exception for a fee. Martin Luther objected to these types of payments, so many Protestants were allowed to marry their first cousins without having to pay. And it's clear from books like Mansfield Park and Wuthering Heights that people in Georgian and Victorian England were not really all that squeamish about these kinds of relations. Queen Victoria married her first cousin, Prince Albert. Albert Einstein and Edgar Allan Poe married their cousins too. Of course, there are cases when it can go too far. So Charles Darwin married his first cousin, and it's thought that he might have been conflicted about this. Their families had a long history of intermarriage, so there may have been some issues with inbreeding. Three of their own children actually died during childhood, and three of their surviving children never had their own children. So some historians and scientists think that there may have been a problem there. So from the sound of it, then, this is a more recent attitude than if in the past this wasn't a big deal. Yeah, and today it's really mostly a Western one. In some cultures, marriage between close family members is actually encouraged. In some parts of the world, like Pakistan and the Middle East, nearly half of all marriages are between close relations. And if you think about it, these types of marriages can have benefits, like securing wealth within the family, reinforcing social connections within the family. And if your family gets along, it might even make marriage easier, the in-laws might be more likely to like each other. Though, of course, that's not always a guarantee. And even within the West, the way that this plays out is not the same. In the U.S., some states ban marriage between first cousins, but no European countries ban them. So the reason this isn't happening in the West has much more to do with the ick factor. But how robust do you think that ick factor is? If the genetic facts point to not so big a deal and lots of cultures say not so big a deal and maybe the family gets along better, is this a temporary situation, do you think? Or will the ick factor kind of rule the day? Well, if my reaction and the reaction of many of my colleagues is any indication, I think that the ick factor is pretty strong. People generally hear about this and have a pretty intense gut reaction. And for that reason, many of these couples choose to keep quiet. It's difficult for them to share this with other people. And as a result, it's hard for us to actually know how many of these couples actually exist in America. And despite the fact that we know scientifically that there's a low risk for offspring, 
25 states in America do not allow first cousins to marry. And in six states, it is legal to marry your first cousin, but with caveats. For example, if one person is unable to reproduce or if they are elderly. So if you just look at the facts, it does seem pretty wrong that we ban these marriages in the U.S. But I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I mean, just look at Nick Wilson's experience. What lawmaker is going to want to go through all of that? Thanks very much for joining us, Tamara. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Now, if you're a subscriber to Economist Podcasts Plus, I'm sure you caught the latest episode of The Weekend Intelligence on Saturday. The surprisingly twisty-turny story of one man's fight to ban a dog, the American XL bully. If you're not a subscriber, let me tell you about a deal that's going to expire at the end of the month. Annual subscriptions are half price, just a couple of bucks or pounds or euros each month. Hurry, we're quickly running out of February. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.